0: In this edition of Update One, we feature an edited version of National Press Club President Lisa Matthews' recent interview with the President and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center.
1: I'm Lisa Nicole Matthews, 114th President of the National Press Club and Assignment Manager for U.S. Video at the Associated Press. Thank you for joining us today for our virtual Headliners Newsmaker with Southern Poverty Law Center President Margaret Wong. Earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security issued a rare national terrorism advisory system bulletin warning of the growing threat from homegrown anti government militias far right hate groups and white supremacists. hate of every type seems to assault our society daily. At the center of the fight where it has stood since it was founded by civil rights leaders Morris Dees, Joseph J. Levin Jr. and Julian Bond in 1971 is the Southern Poverty Law Center. Since its inception, the SPLC based in Montgomery, Alabama has gone to the courts to challenge white supremacist groups, institutional racism, segregation, discrimination, inhumane and unconstitutional conditions in prisons and hate of every sort. As the years have passed, its mission has grown to include tracking the incidents and the organized purveyors of hate culminating in an exhaustive annual report, the year in hate and extremism. This year, SPLC identified 838 active hate groups operating in the United States and thousands of instances of racist conspiracy theories and white nationalist ideology migrating in the political mainstream. Here to discuss the state of hate in America is Margaret Wong, President and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Ms. Wong, welcome to the National Press Club. Thank you so much, Lisa.
2: And thank you to the National Press Club for having me here. It's a great pleasure to be with all of you today. This year, the SPLC is celebrating 50 years of working to protect and advance civil rights, to combat white nationalists and other extremists, and to support educators and communities across the country to help children learn to reject hate and become engaged citizens in a multicultural democracy. That democracy is at greater risk today than in many decades. The SPLC recently renewed our mission statement, clarifying that we are here to serve as a catalyst for racial justice in the South and beyond. We've committed ourselves to working in deep, meaningful partnerships with the communities we serve in the deep South to dismantle white supremacy, to strengthen intersectional movements, and to advance the human rights of all people. We're facing a crisis of far-right extremism and deep threats to our democracy. We all saw this threat on January 6th when the pro-Trump mob led by white nationalists and other far-right extremists rampaged through the Capitol in an attempt to stop Congress from certifying the Electoral College votes. We have also seen the threat in the many domestic terrorist attacks of recent years, at a Walmart in El Paso, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, at a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina, at a Jewish community center in Kansas, at a Sikh Gurdwara in Wisconsin, and many, many other places. We see the threat today in the rising hate crimes and bias incidents across the country, most recently targeting the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Every day, people in these United States are assaulted physically and verbally because of their ethnicity, their gender or sexual orient, or sexual identity, skin color, religion, nationality, or some other perceived identity. Racism and extremism is being mainstreamed infiltrating our politics, our media, our democratic institutions, and importantly, our public policy. We have seen this mainstreaming of hate throughout the Trump years, when many leaders in his administration had ties to extremist groups, and where the president himself was a prolific promoter of far-right conspiracy theories and racist tropes. This extremism brought us policies like the separation of families and the caging of children at the border. And we see the mainstreaming of hate in the far right attacks on voting rights in many states, especially in Georgia, where the state legislature passed a harsh voter suppression law after the Republican party lost the presidential election and two U.S. Senate seats because of an historic voter turnout a turnout led by black voters. I am proud to note that the SPLC has filed suit against the state of Georgia to overturn this law as a violation of our fundamental voting rights. We typically see the number of far-right extremist groups spike during Democratic Party-led administrations, particularly anti-government militia groups. Indeed, militia groups skyrocketed under President Obama And we also documented a doubling of hate groups during his tenure. Then we started to note a decline as the Obama administration was winding down when something happened in 2015 to stop that decline. Trump launched his campaign and turbocharged the white nationalist movement. Over the last four years, hate groups grew by 30% to a new high. Most remarkably, white nationalist groups grew almost 50% in just one year after the 2015 campaign started. These numbers tell a story, but they're just one barometer of the extremism brewing in our country and an imperfect one. Because today, formal membership in a hate group is not as important as it once was. In fact, what we've seen over the past several years is that social media and particularly the proliferation of new extremist platforms allows individuals to engage on a daily basis with potentially violent movements like QAnon and Boogaloo without being a formal member of a particular group. This phenomenon has blurred the boundaries of hate groups and far-right ideologies, helping to coalesce a broader but more loosely affiliated movement that is based in part on white nationalist ideas and that shares a rejection of our democratic institutions and pluralistic society. We've known for years that the internet and social media have been a path to far-right radicalization for many people because they provide ready access to vast troves of extremist and racist content powered by algorithms that can quickly head quickly lead someone deeper and deeper into the world of hate and extremism. What is a relatively new and worrisome development is the monetization of hate and extremism. In the past, hate groups raised money by charging dues and selling products such as hate music and group paraphernalia. The funds were then used to pay for the distribution of propaganda and other recruitment efforts. Some groups like the Oath Keepers, which has thousands of dues paying members, still use this model. But many white power groups and personalities are now collecting millions of dollars online through crowdfunding and the distribution of propaganda itself. The solicitation of donations during live video streaming, for example, is emerging as a major source of revenue. Some extremists, in fact, even earn money by live-streaming the attack on the Capitol. In recent years, many groups and individuals have been deplatformed or kicked off mainstream sites, but newer, smaller companies have stepped in to provide alternative platforms. Too often in the past, the federal government has downplayed the threat of domestic terrorism and has failed to make fighting domestic extremism a high priority. Since January 6th, that's starting to change. For example, President Biden in January ordered law enforcement and intelligence agencies to conduct a comprehensive study of the threat of domestic violent extremism. And two weeks later, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered military commanders to conduct a stand down for 60 days to address extremism within the ranks. We are hopeful that this renewed federal focus on domestic extremism is just the beginning of a sustained effort. It's vitally important that it is because our democracy depends on it.
1: You have given us so much to talk about. Let's go back to the basics. Define for me what hate is or what a hate group is. How does SPLC go about defining a hate group?
2: Thank you for that important first question. (laughs) And we define a hate group as an organization or collection of individuals that based on its official statements or principles, the statements of its leaders or its activities has beliefs or practices that attack or malign an entire class of people, typically for their immutable characteristics. An organization does not have to engage in criminal conduct or have their have followed their speech with actual unlawful action to be labeled a hate group. Mm-hmm.
1: And we don't list individuals, only organizations. You talked a little bit at the top about what's going on with Asian Americans in our country right now. Are there hate groups that are specifically focused on Asian Americans that you're, that SPLC is aware of, or, or are most of those attacks, looking more like lone wolf assaults? So the SPLC tracks a
2: number of hateful uh, ideologies uh, in in the groups that we monitor. Some of them do have espouse beliefs that are Mm anti-immigrant. Some of them do espouse beliefs that might target women, for example. But we don't necessarily um, typically see groups that single out one individual racial group. Uh, typically it's that many of the races are considered to be their targets. So for that reason, I would say, no, we're not monitoring any groups that are targeting Asian Americans at this point. At the same time, many of the groups that we are actually targeting or monitoring are in fact participating in the hateful narrative that is contributing to these lone wolf actions. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges is that, The people who are assaulting elderly Asian people walking down the street, they might be members of a hate group or they might just be somebody who's been reading terrible narratives on extremism platforms. And so that's why it's so important that we're addressing the ways that people are being pulled
1: into these ideologies. I have to tell you, I was blown away uh, when you mentioned the fact that there is a monetization of hate. And I mean, and, and, and the whole um, idea of dues paying members has kind of gone down the drain and that there are different ways that these groups are actually raising money uh, towards to, to meet their ends. Can you, can you talk more about that and, and, and what can be done about it? That's the important question. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the monetization is happening because of the availability of new technologies. So one thing that's important to lift up is hate groups and extremist uh, ideological groups are very tech savvy. They have embraced new technologies, new platforms very quickly, and they've moved into those spaces in ways that have actually benefited them tremendously. So it's not that these technologies aren't used by others as well, but it's that they are so quick to seize the opportunity that these technologies offer. Some of the consequences of that, I'll just first note that we've seen a globalization of their efforts. We see the connection between extremist groups in the United States and extremist activists in Europe, in Australia and New Zealand in Canada, these groups are finding one another online because you know, access to these international now platforms is available to everyone. And the monetization part is the most alarming because many of us are uh, are not using those platforms, are not familiar with those platforms. And it's creating a lot of challenge for um, law enforcement agencies, the FBI, to monitor and understand how those transactions are happening. But DLive is a great example. It's a, a youth-focused gaming website, not something I would have expected necessarily to be a, a focal point for white extremist activity, but it's become one of the most popular platforms amongst many of the leaders in the white nationalist groups. And they film themselves. They film themselves marching. They film themselves training. They film themselves standing on the Capitol steps uh, in state houses. They filmed the insurrection attempt at the Capitol. And then they post those both live stream and later. And they receive money from people who are watching those live stream videos they might charge a fee to watch the video, they might charge, um, they might get donations from people who are watching them and and excited about what they're posting. And they are making literally hundreds of thousands of dollars through these various sites, which then eliminates the need for other of the traditional ways of raising money that many of these groups have used. Lisa, you asked what can be done about this Um, we've lobbied the internet companies to develop and then comply with their own rules so that we can prohibit these kinds of services from actually being used to bolster hate and discrimination. But if the tech companies cannot do that, many of them have rules about the kind of content that they allow on their platforms. And yet we still see that the content existing. So if they cannot make up their own rules in ways that actually stop this kind of hate from proliferating, then we're going to need Congress to step in and develop regulations that will make it mandatory for all platforms.
1: Did SPLC notice an increase in its own donations uh, over the past uh, four years uh, while Trump was in office? Were there more people reaching out to SPLC for help?
2: We did. Uh, We actually saw a very um, generous group of people who offered contributions to the organization to support their work immediately following his election. And even more importantly, from my perspective, is we saw a number of people reaching out, wanting to work with us, wanting to support our advocacy efforts, wanting to make sure that they were up to date on the information that we were providing. So we've seen a lot of our supporters grow as well. And that is a wonderful opportunity for us to really engage with folks across the country on how we can change this situation as we move forward.
1: You know, you touched on uh, the situation with um, some of the lawsuits that SPLC is involved in, and and we talked a little bit about this before the program started. I would like for you to talk a little bit more about those suits, uh, specifically the uh, voter lawsuit uh, going on in Georgia
2: In Georgia, um, shortly after the state legislature passed the new bill, the new law now, that actually restricts voting rights, the SPLC filed a lawsuit um, just within the next week. And we joined our colleagues, the ACLU and the NAACP LDF, in filing the suit. We each have clients in the suit. Our clients include community organizations representing the disability community, the Muslim American community, the African American community and others. Um, And we want uh, this suit to be a reflection of um, the commitment of so many communities to keep the gains of this last, last election. We saw an incredible voter turnout in Georgia, the highest on record. We saw people who had never participated in elections before participating in this one, wanting to express their voice in this election. And the response to that from the losing party in the election is not to think, maybe we need to think about our policies and revise them so that we are connecting with the voters who rejected us in the last election. Instead, it's to actually try to keep those voters out of the ballot box.
1: They called it the Jim Crow 2.0.
2: There's no question. This is absolutely a return to Jim Crow. It restricts the number of ways that people can vote. It makes it harder for people to exercise their vote by requiring uh, forms of ID and things that are just not necessary, have never been demonstrated to be necessary. The ostensible cause for this bill was to prevent voter fraud which is stunning because Georgia actually demonstrated three times by the manual count, three times that there was no voter fraud, that in fact the votes went as the voters expected and demanded. And so to now claim that they're fighting this fraudulent myth of voter fraud is actually an excuse for taking the vote away from people who really need to be heard and listened to in the elections as we go forward.
1: I know growing up, you know, they tell you that hate is learned. It's something that, you know, you find out from your family members, you're raised in it. What what do we tell our children about it? And and how do we we stop it uh, once someone becomes a part of it? How do we break them of it?
2: It's such an important question. Thank you, Lisa. I mentioned earlier that I'm really proud of our work in the Learning for Justice program. And that's because this is the difficult work that you've just referenced. We have to learn how to tell our children, both about our hard history, things that we need to reckon with from our past, things that have challenged our democracy in the past, but also how do we stop the rise of hate and extremism from continuing? And the most important part of that work is prevention. It's actually not prosecution. It's, it's not policy making because we can't actually litigate our way out of the problem of hate and extremism or arrest our way out of that problem. We have to stop people from seeking out the information, from wanting to be part of movements that embrace that hateful ideology. And often that starts with young people. And so some of the work we're doing, we're actually uh, collaborating with the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University to develop online curriculum and toolkits for parents on how to talk to your kids about this. Over the last year, we've been really worried about kids sitting at home. Kids are learning online, so they're spending a lot of time online, and much of it is not with other adults around paying attention to what's happening, because we all have work going on uh, at the same time. So we developed a toolkit for parents that actually helps you look out for how do, how do you know if your children might be being exposed to some of this hateful ideology? What are the signs that they might be learning about things that you have not taught them? And this toolkit is just the start. We're developing other curriculum as we go forward on what to do if your kid has become exposed to this hateful ideology. What are some of the tools that you can use? There are groups out there that work with people who have been members of extremist groups and choose to leave. It's not easy to do that. And there's um, a group called Life After Hate that works with people who are trying to leave that hateful ideology. But if we can prevent young people from finding this at all attractive or appealing, that is our best hope. And that's something that all of us as parents, as community members can do. We need to talk with our children. We need to talk about what happened on January 6th and why it's so important that we don't let misinformation distract us from the truth. We need to talk about how we reject hate and we look for ways to work with other people in our community, people who might be different from us, but who share the same values that we have. Those are all important steps that we can do right now.
1: Thanks for telling us about SPLC and what it's doing today. Uh, thank you for all of your hard work. And, you know, we really appreciate you joining us, albeit virtually, at the National Press Club.
2: Thanks again. It was a great pleasure.
1: Thank you.
0: Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to update1podcast, that's update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.